Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vi er rigtig, rigtig mange i min generation. Jeg er født i 1974. Og blandt vores forældre, dem der er født i 40'erne, som er vokset op med den såkaldte Frankfurterskole og den såkaldte kritiske teori. Da jeg var ung, der var det sådan, at hvis man skulle tænke kritisk, og hvis man skulle tænke rigtig samfundskritisk, så skulle man i hvert fald læse Adorno. Man skulle helst også læse Benjamin, og så blev man nødt til at læse noget Habermas. Det var ligesom ikke bare pensum, da jeg startede på universitetet. Det var også pensum i ungdomskulturen. Så hvis man ville være kritisk, og hvis man ville være intellektuel, og hvis man ville være venstreorienteret, alle de ting ville jeg være, før jeg blev 20, så var der ingen vej uden om Frankfurterskolen. Så kom jeg op i 20'erne. Der var der ingen vej uden om den franske poststrukturalisme. Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, Gilles Deleuze. Det var ting, man ganske enkelt måtte læse, hvis man ville forstå nogle meget, meget, meget sofistikerede ting og frigøre sig fra nogle meget, meget, meget banale opfattelser af verden. Og det er på en eller anden måde, på godt og på ondt, det pensum, mange af os er vokset op med og blevet formet af. Det er ikke et pensum, der fylder specielt meget mere. Adorno, Benjamin, Marcuse er ikke kritisk kaneren på samme måde, som Georgiana Zuboff eller Thomas Piketty er i dag. Og Jacques Derrida og Michel Foucault er en slags baggrundsinspiration, men de er slet, slet ikke så langt fremme som alle mulige andre kulturkritikere. Alligevel er det vores venstreorienterede intellektuelle kulturarv, som vi alle sammen har med os og som vi alle sammen kæmper lidt med. Noget af det har vi arvet, noget af det har vi kastet på mødingen, og noget af det slås vi med os selv om. Men det er en vigtig del af vores historie, det er en vigtig del af vores arv, det er noget, man må gøre op med, men man må også gøre op med det, uden at smide det hele væk, for der er også en masse ting, der er vigtige at tage videre. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark. And especially good evening to you, Christoph Menke, who is with us from your home in Frankfurt, Germany. Actually from Berlin, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> all the same. <laughs> Jeg vil hellige den næstsidste af denne sæsons langsomme samtale hele spørgsmålet om, hvad skal vi arve fra den kritiske teori? Hvad blev der tilbage af Jacques Derrida og Michel Foucault? Og jeg er så heldig, at den tyske filosof og kunstteoretiker Christoph Menke, som i dag er ansat på Frankfurterskolen som professor i praktisk og politisk filosofi, han har indvildet i at stille op og tale med mig om alle de her anlæggende arven efter Frankfurterskolen, kritisk teori og poststrukturalismen. Det er ting, han selv er formet af. Det er ting, han selv har været med til at fortolke. Det er også ting, han er blevet nødt til at gøre op med for at komme videre selv. Jeg lover, at det bliver ikke en rent teoretisk omgang, for vi kommer også til at tale meget om sagen mellem Johnny Depp og Amber Heard, og hvordan det hænger sammen med kritisk teori. Det finder I ud af, hvis I lytter med nu. You are at the Goethe University in, in Frankfurt, and which is a university and the Institute for Social Forschung has been very, very influential for us here in Denmark. A lot of us grew up with it intellectually and the works of Walter Benjamin, Adorno, Horkheimer, Marcuse, Habermas, and Honneth, they were part of our education. Later came the post-structuralist from, from France. But, but that was something that a lot of us grew up with and, and learned to think critically through. And, and you're part of that tradition. So I, I want to take the chance, of course, and ask you, what was your way into that critical theory tradition, your own personal way? 
Yeah, it already started quite early in high school, actually. So I, I had a philosophy teacher in high school who had studied uh, within the last two years with Adorno before Adorno died. So he came directly from that tradition and he introduced us, as this is possible, with 17 or 18 years old into that tra tradition. So we read Marcuse with him and Adorno. And we even tried to read Benjamin. I remember this as a rather frustrating experience so, uh, because I didn't understand much. But and then I, I, I took up stu uh, to study philosophy first in Heidelberg and then actually with somebody from the Frankfurt School, Albrecht Wellmer, who had been an assistant to Habermas. And so I learned it in a certain sense directly. So from one of the... the the heirs of the Frankfurt School tradition. I think for many of us here, when, when we started reading the critical theory, of course, Marcuse was very dominant because of the 68 movement. So one of my friends said, well, when I was very young and I still believed in the youth movement, I read Marcuse. Then I got old and I started reading Habermas and I became a social democrat. Then I got annoyed with the social democrat and I returned to Walter Benjamin. Uh, how was your own development later intellectually? I mean, then uh, during my studies at the university, I mean, the other influential source for me uh, was the one you already mentioned, namely the French discussions of the time. So I'm talking now about the 80s. So when the first wave of perception started of Derrida, of Deleuze and Foucault in, uh, in Germany, that was very influential for me as well. And actually, my first book, my dissertation was um, on Derrida and Adorno, where I tried to bring them together much to the annoyance of Habermas who didn't like it at all so that he thought this is some kind of treason or something like that so but I think these two sources I mean French um, the French post-structuralist tradition and the the Franco tradition were always very important for me and reading through that of course influences then I mean the classics like Hegel Hegel is always extremely central for me and and Marx of course uh, it must have been at the time when Habermas was very critical of Derrida, but you know, later he wrote the dialogue book with him, which we found quite surprising here. Yeah. The, you know, the legacy of Derrida and Foucault is quite controversial here. I mean, at, it was very, very influential. And when I was studying, we really, at the time, were asking ourselves if there actually was a reality outside the text. That was how seriously that we took Derrida. And I think for us who read it at the time, I think it is still very influential as a reading strategy. And also, you know, there are always hidden meanings. You should always read carefully. And his literature readings of Mallarmé and Kafka, I think, are, are, are excellent. But philosophically, he, he doesn't really play a role here, here, here today. It's different with Foucault, because I think Foucault was very, very influential. And then came Trump and people were saying, well, it's all Trump's fault, it's all Foucault's fault. And others were saying, well, this wokeness from America, that's also Foucault's fault, you know. So he's been blamed, he's, he, they blame him for the left and for the right. So, so I, I feel they're both in a bad standing today, actually Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, but I still personally am influenced by them. How do you see their legacy? You refer to them in the book that we're going to talk about. Yeah, I think they, they... I have a different view on, on uh, different from what many people uh, say when they blame Derrida and Foucault for, let's say, the wokeness, the identity politics. I think rather this is a deep misunderstanding of what they're really doing, because I think at least this was my 
maybe also the personal important for me personally, these authors said, they really raised the level of self-reflection. It was a further step because it was so clear that there was nothing in a certain sense that one could simply take for granted. Yeah? So you read a text and you thought you knew, I mean, you, you trusted more or less in the self-interpretation of the author of the text and the programmatic uh, discourse on that text, and then Derrida showed you that in, in truth something totally different is happening in the text. Yeah, so always have to to ask another time, or, or as Adorno said, second reflection. Right, you have to think twice, and even the third and the fourth time, and you will always find something that does not really fit into the system that you had uh, constructed from the text in the first step. And of course, Foucault did this, did this uh, certainly uh, differently. He didn't look in the text for the other of uh, identity, for other of, of, of the systematic unity, but he, he looked rather behind the text, right, for the power relations and for the influences that came from there. But however you, you read them, and, and of course the differences are, are, are great and and interesting to discuss. I think they are so different from uh, a simplistic trust in what you are and what is given, mm. right? You can never say I have an identity that is defined by that and that tradition and I can trust that identity and I want that identity to be recognized. But it's always a questioning of identity, right? It's a questioning of even of your self-understanding. And I think that is very productive still. So I would always defend them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, but but I think they have a trait of of them is that they're both highly original, and it's it's a hard act to follow. You yeah. know, a lot of people were inspired by them, and they're both. I would insist till the day I die that they're both both anti dogmatists, and they are. You know, everything that that's too much or that is too dogmatist, you can always use them against it, and that goes for Derrida as well as for Foucault. But for many of their followers, that became dogmatist. Absolutely. I think, but maybe that's the fate of every great thinker, right? I mean, even if you remember how Hegel was read at, by his first students and, and the fate of Hegel, Hegelianism, the fate of Marxism, the fate of Adorno also. I mean, I still remember in the 70s and the 80s where there were all these people who tried to talk like Adorno and thereby <laughs> gave up, I think, what everything was interesting in uh, those thinkers. And maybe something you mentioned before with reference to uh, Marcuse has to happen for all these thinkers in order to become productive and original again, or innovative again, they have to be forgotten for a moment. Yeah? So you have, to, you have to put them aside and because you need that distance, right? To, to, to take Derrida seriously without being a dogmatic Derridian or to take Foucault seriously without being a Foucauldian. Yeah? So I think that's the moment when they become productive. And I think there's a chance for them to come back here. Yeah? So during this, maybe because of being forgotten for a moment. Oh, I, I definitely think so too. At, at times I have, I have a vague fear that the critical theory is also in danger of being forgotten. Not, you know, I think Habermas, for many here is the greatest European thinker today. And mm. for some reason, he still has a moral authority, even in our, you know, in our Danish public. And the influences of Hunnett is enormous. It, mm. it really is enormous. Uh, the theory of recognition is everywhere in our education system. But as a as a as a critical way of thinking, as a tradition of, of thinking, it's not as influential as it as it used to be. How do you see the legacy and how do you see the critical potential of critical theory today? Yeah, I think there's a, there, there's a real 
problem. I mean, I think, I mean, I admire, how can you not? I mean, Havamas, of course, enormously and have learned so much from him. But also there, there has been a time, maybe there in, during the last years, he has changed in that respect a little bit, where he was basically presenting himself as uh, a defender of liberal democracy, to be very brief. Yeah? And um, I think when, when the awareness of the crisis of liberal democracy as a political system, but also as a socioeconomic system, I mean, especially crisis of capitalism, to be to put it bluntly and shortly, I mean, became so obvious uh, for some time people thought there is nothing to be found in, in that tradition. Um, in, in Habermas and maybe also in Honet. But I think, of course, there, there is, there's interest, there are interesting impulses and thoughts there to be found for, for critical stance towards society. But I mean, at this moment, at least in Germany, uh, the younger students are much more intrigued by Adorno and Marcuse again, because they think they speak more to their awareness uh, of, of a deep crisis of our contemporary times. Maybe we will have a chance at the end also to talk about contemporary crisis which band yeah um and i think that the franco tradition is still uh, alive can be read in a way that really speaks to the contemporary problems i, I agree with you i think so, something that's also very interesting is that when i was young if you were critical of capitalism you would always go to the frankfurt school always Hmm. But but today we see different critiques of capitalism that are very influential, like Thomas Piketty's criticism, his, his student Gabriel Sugman, hmm. uh, the historian Adam Tooze and, and Sociana Supov. And what they have in common, they're very different thinkers. What they have in common is they base their work on empirical studies, that, that they, they actually studied the machine, you could say, and they were not afraid of the machine. They studied the machine. And they came out with some conceptual clarity. And I think a lot of us felt they gave us critical weapons that the capitalism couldn't ignore, that the capitalists couldn't ignore. Whereas you felt that it was easy for capitalists to ignore you when you're quoting Adorno, uh, yeah. for, instance, for, 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 for instance. How, how do you see this? You could call it a lack of empirical foundation of the critique of capitalism in critical theory. That's certainly a big problem. I think that is that's maybe the weakest side of, of the Frankfurt School, that it never really, um, uh, not even developed a method on, or let's say, a lively interest. Yeah. So in in empirical research, of course, one should never forget there was a lot of empirical research at the Institute for Social Research, but that imp empirical research was somehow disconnected from the theoretical work, the critical work they did. Right. So they gathered a lot of material on, let's say, this, this situation of the workers, the situation of the student, how I must did this empirical research as well. But it never was directly connected yeah, with their uh, critical work. And the, the authors you mentioned, I mean, I think what they do remarkably, admirably well, right, is, is to, to reconnect empirical research with a critical stance. Yeah? And I think there's so much to learn from that. But one should also not forget, I mean, that the, of course, the grandfather of critical theory, Marx, also did something <laughs> similar. I mean, the capital is full of empirical research, not in the sense that he went in the field to gather empirical material, but, I mean, he read so much empirical stuff and tried to connect the the theoretical work and the empirical work, okay, nobody can do this anymore, right? That is for sure. But I think there is a chance, I mean, to, to well, I mean, one would, would, should think about the tradition of critical theory as aiming at least as 
at connecting these two sides. But you're right. I mean, the Frankfurt School is and was weak on that side. I spoke to Adam Tuz earlier this season, and he he was actually saying that he was thinking of himself as Karl Marx when he was studying, <laughs> when he was writing exactly. the British Museum, and he said that he was studying all these different factories, how to produce tractors, when he was writing his, his new book, and he realized he couldn't do it. You know, he could not establish a, a, a point of view from which he could see everything. Hmm. I mean, that that's, I think, the greatness and the weakness, of course, at the same time of, of Marxism, or of, not Marxism, but Marx theory, that he, he opened up, of course, uh, to a lot of empirical research, but really thought that there is one basic structure and one basic problem in a certain sense, on, for, uh, on from which you can explain in a certain sense all the crisis of capitalism, all the function of capitalism. And this is, this gives his theory a systematicity, which is I mean, remarkable, but I think these authors, uh, these these theoreticians, uh, these 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 people you mentioned are right that maybe this is for very fundamental reasons not possible anymore. If it ever was possible, right? That that there is rather a, a certain plurality of problems, a plurality of crises. I mean, for instance, the ecological crisis is certainly directly connected with capitalism, but this is not the same problem as exploitation, for instance, right? So, and you cannot have one super theory or master theory that simply connects these different um, these different uh, problems and crises. How exactly is racism and capitalist exploitation connected? Somehow they are connected, but this is not the same problem, right? You cannot derive everything from this basic structure of exploitation like Marx tried. No, and I think that changes the role of uh, the intellectual, that you are part of a you're part of a cooperative working together and some are looking at climate change very technically Because right. you know, if you don't get the technicalities right, you will lose. Yeah. But others are looking at the concept concept of of, of uh, man and nature. So it's kind of a collective work more than the work of an individual genius. Exactly, and one should not forget that this exactly what you I mean exactly nearly in those words which you uh, were using now was. Uh, the program of Max Horkheimer when he started yeah. uh, in in the with the Frankfurt Institute in the in 1930-1931 and that it was ended by other political forces right one does not know what actually the Frankfurt School could have become if they had uh, had this, uh, the chance to continue their work I mean in a different context not in exile but in Frankfurt for instance yeah so Okay, but no, nobody knows. <laughs> no, no. And let's turn to to your wonderful book, Law and, and Violence. When you pick it up, you think this is a short book, but it's very. It's a wonderful book. It's a condensed, very convincing, exact uh, book, and it's very enlightening today as it was at the time when when you read it. But I'm still curious at the time when you when you wrote it, uh, what 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 kind of question was the book an answer to? What what was the situation that you addressed with the book it's about 10 years old yeah i mean it actually came out of of a different project and that project was uh, uh, i had just finished a few years before which was uh, a book on tragedy mm-hmm. so where where i started to read uh, tragedies and as i asked myself i mean what can we can we actually learn from 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 tra- tragedy also as a literary form yeah so if we assume that this is not 
an old-fashioned Greek thing, but there are reasons why we still uh, read those those texts, right? And uh, and then, of course, it was clear. I mean, in, I read Oedipus and um, Orestia, so that these are um, very interesting critical self-reflections on institutions that were set up only at the same time. I mean, this, I mean we should not forget this. It was not, I mean, there, there was not a long tradition of democracy and law already in Athens, but in the very same moment, they established these uh, institutions in a remarkable and, and progressive way. They had a public institution like the tra like tragedy where they were so deeply critical about that i mean i think that is something also which which is to admire right where do we have this co-contemporaneous of let's say a very affirmative practice and a, and a new practice and it's self-critic at the same time yeah so this was what i found interesting and then i wanted to ask myself what can we learn in a certain sense from such a critical self-reflection of the institution of law for our contemporary understanding. Yeah? So, of course, I use, as you know, some of these ancient texts, but I think I try to use them in a way that they speak to our contemporary experiences. And if I should say something about the... the yeah, please. Yeah. Um, and the, the main interest I had was to say, how can we understand uh, something that that is in this tragic experience so important namely that the on the one hand uh, law is seen there and i think should still be seen as a remarkable advantage in the way in which we establish justice in society yeah so uh, the, the law is about justice i think there's nothing to deny about this i don't think that is an instrument of domination and so on i think this is short-sighted and does not understand anything it's there in order to find just solutions for our conflicts and struggles and violations and so on and on the other side what is also the case and maybe we can talk about this more in detail that there's a certain sense of in which law also is itself experienced as inflicting violence on us, right? And, and this dialectics of enlightenment, maybe this dialectics of law, that was something that I, I was interested in. It's funny because there was this trial recently with Johnny Depp and, uh, and Amber Heard, and, and he, she accused him of having done something to her, and then he took her to court, and it was very... In that trial, it was very obvious in, in, in a very vulgar sense that that being convicted was also seen as an act of violence. And I thought of your book when, when I just followed this, because at the same time, they, they both looked at the law as an authority that they would ultimately obey. They would ultimately obey, but they were also, also both looking at the other as a criminal. I felt that was kind of a popular version of the paradox in your book. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's a very good observation, I think, because, uh, I mean, the in a sense, without taking sides there, because I cannot take sides, I have no idea what, what the truth is in this, in this conflict, but it was so obvious that at the end, I was a totally depressive and depressing end, right? I mean, the, even if there was this triumphant gesture by, by Johnny Depp at the end, he said, I won basically, yeah. But that this uh, this whole trial uh, only produced new violations, new new victims, and, and was in a certain sense that the whole legal setting was not able to address this problem adequately, right? And I think this is something to, to think about. So in what sense is, 
um, the legal language, the language of law, the, ins the institution of law, the procedure of law, really um, able to do justice to these kinds of problems. Yeah. And I think there's a, the, the, the initial move in your book is that you take kind of a conflict of liberalism that you want the law. And in order to have the law, you must have law-abiding law subjects. So, you, so people must become subject in order for the system of the law to function. But the law is also, is, is also just in a way of continuing the violence at a higher level or civilizing the violence, which I think that's all, that also explains why the theme of revenge continues to haunt our popular culture, even in, in, in Game of Thrones. So you have this ultra-modern dilemma, but you go to the tragedy to explain it. So, so there's also a strategic way of saying, we're used to thinking that we can resolve our paradox here, but you go to the, you, you go to the tragedy of Sophocles. Why did yeah. you go to Oedipus? I, I went to Oedipus because I think, I think in that respect, he, he is really one of the first modern subjects. Yeah? So or, uh, is a modern subject, or the modern subject, the inventor of modern subjectivity, because what's so interesting in, in, in the Oedipus case is that, of course, unwillingly, He is at the same time the one who judges and the one who is judged. Yeah. So, and this, in a certain sense, is connection, right? We are the ones who are judged by the law, but the law addresses us in such a way that it expects us to adopt that judgment, to internalize the judgment, and to become judges in a certain sense ourselves, right? So, the law never would say, I judge you to a standard that is external to you. I judge you from outside and so on. But in a certain sense, the judge is seen as representing all of us and therefore even those who are judged by the judge. Yeah? So there's, there's nobody who's merely an object of law, but the, the law always expects from us that we, in a certain sense, take over law's perspective, that we judge ourselves in the same way the law and the judge would judge ourselves. And this internalization, yeah, I want to say, of law is starting with Oedipus involuntarily, but is a central mechanism for the functioning of law. And there's this, I never thought of it. You're, you're very precise in your way of describing. I never thought of it like that before, that we must become subjects and get rid of our own subjectivity at the same time in, in, in order for the law to function. But you also describe it as a curse. You yeah. say you you say there is a curse here. And when I read it first, I thought, well, well, isn't this the isn't this civilization? But you say it's a curse. Why why is it a curse? Uh, this is in a sense what I understand by the violence of law. I I don't mean by violence of law, which is also true. I think just uh, or understand the violence of law just in instrumental sense. I mean, that there's a certain kind of instrumental violence in law, I think is totally obvious. I mean, the prison system, for instance, the police, which is connected to the law. I mean, that is when, and I, I wouldn't even say that I criticize that. Yeah. So, but the, the violence of law, which I find uh, in a sense that's very problematic, and I think about which we have to think more, is precisely this Uh, this fateful character of law in which uh, law demands from us that we, uh, as I just said, that we judge ourselves according to legal standards in a certain sense. And that makes it impossible. And this is shown, I, I can explain this in a moment or describe this in a moment more precisely. I think this is seen very uh, well in, in Oedipus. I mean, you remember uh, maybe the end where Oedipus blinds himself. Sure. Right? And this self-blinding, in a certain sense, has the effect that from now on, 
um, he will just be somebody who is totally, in some sense, encapsulated in his legal guilt, yeah, encapsulated in the guilt that the law has established uh, and and found out. There is no way out for him anymore. This is what I mean by curse, yeah. So there is no way out huh. of the legal setting, yeah, because. Um, the law, in a certain sense, can only demand from us that we take over its judgment, and that is, in a certain sense, the end for the law. But then I think what we need, in a certain sense, is freedom even from the law or freedom from the legal judgment. We need we need something like, a, let's say, a perspective of living or of life, right, that gives us a certain kind of distance to what, what the law tells us about us and what we, according to the law, have to tell ourselves about us, right? We need a different language than, than legal language. And as long as we don't have a different perspective, a different language um, than the law's own, the law functions, as I want to say, as faith or as curse. Yeah? So to put it maybe even a little bit more simple, I mean, is to say um, the subject cannot forgive itself. Yeah. Yes. So, that is not something that we can do. We can never forgive ourselves. I mean, all forgiving to of your, I mean, if you forgive yourself, you have not experienced your guilt any, really. Only others can forgive you. Only can, can others can absolve you. Only others can open you uh, for you a different perspective. And that is a perspective that would cut off the power of curse, that would cut off the fateful character of law. So an interruption of the functioning of the legal language that in a certain sense defines us from uh, from inside and open us a new perspective. This is what I want to say with reference to Oedipus. It's a very long argument that we put a little short, short, shortly here for pedagogical reasons. But but you say that in, that the, this basic paradox, we cannot resolve this, this paradox, but we must bring it to full expression. Uh, what does it mean to bring the paradox of law and violence to full expression? Yeah, I think uh, what I, I mean, this has a negative and a positive side. The negative side is to, to say there is no way that you can ever separate violence and law, right? So, uh, and that means there is no, you cannot decide here between the two sides. You cannot say, okay, either I stay in the, in order of violence and revenge. Um, uh, I mean, that is would be the one option. And the other option would be, to go into the order of law. What I want to say, if you try to make such a decision, you will find out that by making the step from revenge to law, you will find yourself in a new form of violence, right? So there is no, I mean, a simplistic understanding of critique would be to say critique says separation, distinction. You can you can find a law that is nonviolent. Um, you can separate the two. And I think this strategy of separation, right, where you decide, uh, between law and violence, where you separate them neatly and say, here's law that is fine, here's violence that is bad, that does not work, right? So you're always you're always in the problem, in the paradox, right? So that is the negative side of that claim. The paradox cannot be solved. You cannot dissolve the two sides from each other. And then, of course, the question is, uh, what can we do? Yeah, if, if, I mean, I, I guess this is part of your question, right? The positive question, what can we do, right? If exactly. We, in that paradox. And I think, I mean, uh, the abstract kind of answer would be to deal with law 
by self-reflectively being aware of its violent potential, right? And that would mean, I think, in my view, it would mean to, um, I mean, that might sound a little bit strange, but to relativize law. Yes. Yeah? So, And relativize law, that means not to say that law is not a good thing or something like this, but to acknowledge that there is something other than law. Yeah. And that other of law is our life. Yeah. So the other of law is life. Yeah. So the, the I mean, the, the life as we lead it in our self understanding, in our everyday life and so on, that is not law. Yeah. So there's always an other to law and another an side in a certain sense of law. That what I call the non law. Yeah. In the translation. Yeah. I don't know how it's translated in Norwegian. And we have to find a way to move back and forth in a certain sense between the legal perspective and the non-legal perspective that forms our everyday life. So that is what I mean by relativizing law, right? So to, in a certain sense, one could also say to gain a certain sovereignty toward law, not be, being defined by the legal perspective as such, but to acknowledge that difference and find ways of moving between the two sides of that difference. Yeah, that's what you call in the very end, and it's not a novel, so I can reveal the end here without <laughs> destroying the, that you call, <clears throat> you call it to master the paradox. And I think the German word must be behaschen. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Not to be domin or not to be mastered by the paradox, yeah, because then you're stuck. Yeah. If you're just in the paradox, you don't know what to do, and that leads to pessimism or passivity or resignation, right? This is not what I want to preach. I don't want to preach resignation, but I rather want to see that new ways of acting uh, can be opened up here. Ways of acting that that acknowledge the partiality of the legal perspective and therefore are able to transcend the partiality of that legal perspective. And this, to master the paradox, <clears throat> I'm not sure if I understand this correctly, but I was thinking when I read it about the sexual emancipation, that you say, well, we have this space which is outside the law. We love each other, man and wife and, and wife and, and, and her lover, man and his And, and his mistress, and we can do do things in our sexual relations that are not allowed in 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 the legal life. That is the non-legal sphere of our life. That so we've relativized it here. We do things here. We all know the joke about the kid who comes in and says, "Oh my God, Dad is hurting the mother, my mother with a whip." And mother says, "No, no, no, he's treating me well." So you have these two spheres, but their relation must be dialectical because then you say, "Well." He said that this was a non-legal sphere and it turned out to be a space of domination. So it turned out that, that it was violent space. So the relation must be dialectical or flexible. Exactly. No, no, it's it's not. Exactly. That's a very good point. I think very important. It's not in a certain sense an abstract opposition where you have a stable difference uh, between two spheres. Yeah. So where you can say, I mean, that is a, the conservative view. So what is in the family cannot be legalized and the law should not intervene in what is going on in the family. And that is basically a defense of patriarchal uh, power relations. That is far from what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. But I think what we, we, I mean, we should not be, um, we should not, uh, understand this this criticism for instance of a patriarchal uh, uh, neutralization of uh, of the family um, uh, over against the law in such a way that we forget right that 
what what people actually feel, how people what people practice, what people um, do with their life, how and how they see themselves can never be be adequately represented in law, and that we need an awareness mm. of that difference. I mean, um, I, I think you were referring to that play by Heinrich von Kleist, and this is a very interesting play. If I can briefly say, do sure. we have time to say this? Yes, okay. definitely. Because it's it's exactly about that question. I mean, it's basically about the violent act of violation, right? It's Adam and Eve. I mean, actually, this is the name of the, the two persons. And Adam has violated Eve. That's actually what has happened. And then a court trial starts, right? And Eve is in court very clear about the violence of that act. But when she is then asked to say what she feels for Adam, she, she says, I don't want to reveal that here. Yeah, she claims her right to be silent. She claims her right to protect, in a certain sense, the ambivalences, the opacity, in a certain sense, of her attitudes and feeling uh, over against the, 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 the determinacy of the law. Because the law would ever say either it was love or it was violation. And maybe it was violation, but there's also always something else going on, right? Which the law cannot adequately grasp and where the law has to refrain from from trying to, to capture that, right? Yeah, and I think that point is very, very strong in the book. And after having read it, you recognize it in different spaces that it's not it's not like a pessimistic reading. It doesn't inspire cynicism at all. It inspires a kind of flexible understanding of emancipation. Yeah, exactly. I think that is, that is what I mean. I mean, I mean that, that is a different language, but uh, since we are both Hegelians, I mean, you... <laughs> You know, the, the early critique of, of Hegel, of the law, he always says we need something, uh, a society can never be, can never function entirely or as, as legally organized, can never entrust itself entirely to the legal administration of justice. It needs something, a moment which he calls, so their love, one could maybe also say solidarity, community, uh, practices of mutual relation and so on, which claim their independence yeah, from, from the legal sphere and claim the difference right, from the legal sphere. And this is some, not something pessimistic. On the contrary, I think, in my view, it's an optimistic perspective. Yeah. <laughs> and th these figures are also correlated to two figures of critique. So you have in the last 15 pages of the book is almost like a manifest yeah. for, for, for a kind of a critical Position and you contrast two. We leave out the dogmatist and the vulgar critiques, but you contrast two critical figures: the genealogical critique and the normative critique. Yeah. How would you summarize these two positions? Yeah, this refers back. I mean, genealogical critique has, has many different meanings, and many refer to Nietzsche and Foucault. I, I was there inspired more by something that the early Marx says. Uh, yeah. He says in a very interesting passage. Um, on Proudhon, he criticizes a certain kind of normative critique. I mean, a little bit a caricature, I admit, yeah, it's, it can be much more complicated, where the normative critic says, there's always one side which is good and one side which is bad. Yeah, so, and we have to contrast these two sides. And then Marx says, this is like uh, Proudhon who says, Slavery, okay, has a good side, has a bad side. We have to distinguish them. Of course, there. This is not the same with normative critique always. But normative critique always tries, tries to say there's a certain kind of normative substance in something which can be separated from what is bad in that 
uh, institution, right? And as I said before, I don't believe in that art of separation, in, art, in that art of distinction. I think the good and the bad side are always intertwined in a very deep and paradoxical and very uh, discomforting sense. We cannot organize in a certain sense. Uh, we cannot separate things like that. And genealogical critique, says Marx, uh, tries to do something else. It does not try to judge something from outside uh, according to certain uh, to certain values and so on, but it tries to go into the phenomenon itself and find what what is its own other in its genesis, as he says, in its becoming, right? And then, if we think of law like this, we would say, okay, what what was the beginning of law? Law began in a certain sense on the one side by saying, "I'm in favor of justice. I want to establish justice," and I know this is the beginning that justice is not there by itself, yeah? which means to acknowledge that there is a difference between what is there already and what I want to establish. And I want to, in sense that all I want to do is to remind law of this initial move in which it, law itself was aware of being different, right, from life, for instance. And that means remind law of its own awareness of its artificiality, of its constructedness, of its difference from from what is there, from, from life. Yeah? So to be brief, genealogical critique goes into the phenomenon you want to criticize and tries try to find the other of that phenomenon, the oppositional force of that phenomenon in that phenomenon itself. And this insight, I think that must be in your work closely related to the fact that you're working with ideas and what we could call aesthetics or art at the same time, that, that these two go together. But that, so, so to return to tragedy here, and then it seems to me that in your work, you have, you have all the time contrasted ideas with art and tragedy and, and, and novels and, and poetry and, and, and short stories. So if you're not familiar with the aesthetic way of understanding human beings, these are discouraging uh, insights, but if you are, it's it's like you recognize something. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good description, and I think I already became aware of it much later. <laughs> so <laughs> I really thought I had be left behind aesthetics and had done something else. But in the end, I noticed what I had done is, in a sense, that I've read law as if it were a text. Yeah, it was yeah. as if it were itself a tragedy. So and. Uh, um, in a certain sense, I've written something like a literary review of of law, yeah. So, and uh, but I think I don't know if it's legitimate, but at least it helps me to see something in in the text of that institution. If I read that institution as if it were a text, right? You can do something like I mean, what Derrida taught us, right? That there is an, a counterforce operative in every text, and I think in the same way, there's a counterforce operative in law. That we can use to to overcome its closed and and um, identitarian and repressive character. And I and I also think this attitude vaccinates vaccinates us against the assumption that those thinking about the world has the answers about the world. That that you know that 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 you're just. And I very often have the feeling that when we're speaking like this, we're just playing chess close to the battlefield. And we tell ourselves that these pieces of chess, they're moving everything on the battlefield and it has nothing to do with the battlefield. And that, of course, leads me to my final question, which is difficult, but, but I must ask you, since you're from the Frankfurt School, 
who's the audience of this kind of of, of book? There's a there's a question because this is a very very fundamental book. It relates to very fundamental questions about how to address right and wrong in this society, how to be a citizen, how to engage, how to develop your critical capacities to, to create space and, and, and emancipation, for instance. What, what are your reflections on, on that relation between theory and praxis? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think the, I mean, I cannot really identify the audience, but I think what, what I tried to, let's say, to achieve, I mean, what well, I hope to achieve, yeah, so to the book is to encourage people to feel uncomfortable, yeah. I mean, that they remember that they have made some, some kind of unsettling, discomforting experience with law, for instance, already themselves, and which were, for instance, with the Johnny Depp case, where they found something very strange and, and not really good there, yeah. And I want, in a certain sense, to encourage them to see this to trust in a certain sense there this kind of feeling yeah, that there's something not going well uh, in with for instance law and everybody who can recognize him or herself in that description i think could be the audience of my book thank you christoph mink it's been such a pleasure talking to you thank you for your work and for taking your time i hope i get the chance to talk to you another time i hope so too so thank you so much for the chance to talk to you det var min samtale med Christoph Menke. Jeg vil skynde mig at sige, at hans bog, som vi taler meget om i samtalen, Ret og Vold, er udkommet på det norske forlag Audiatur. Og hvis man vil bestille bogen, kan man gå ind på forlagets hjemmeside. Man kan også bare google Menke Ret, R-E-T-T, og Vold. Så skal, den nok, så skal den nok dukke op. Jeg kan stærkt anbefale den. Det er et tungt tema, men det er en hurtigt læst bog, som sætter en ind i en hel verden af refleksioner. I næste uge, der slutter vi hele sæsonen af Langsomme Samtaler, og det gør vi med et interview med en af vores store helte her på Dagbladet Information, Bill McKibben, mand, der skrev en af de første bøger overhovedet om klimaforandringerne, The End of Nature, fra 1900. 89, manden, som har startet adskillige græsrodsorganisationer og som har været aktiv i adskillige årtier i hele den intellektuelle side af kampen mod klimaforandringerne. Han har lavet en ny bevægelse, der hedder Third Act, som handler om, hvorfor dem, der er over 60, har det store, progressive og kritiske potentiale i kampen mod klimaforandringerne. Sådan bliver det i næste uge. Og så vil jeg til allersidst sige, at hvis man er interesseret i at læse de her langsomme samtaler, så har vi jo samlet min bog der hedder Langsomme Samtaler, der har vi samlet de første et par 40. Og jeg har skrevet et langt forår, som handler om, hvad fanden er egentlig meningen med de her samtaler? Hvordan kan det være, at vi tror på, at de her samtaler rent faktisk flytter verden? Det forklarer jeg i foråret, som hedder Mellemmandens Manifest. Og hvis man er abonnent, så kan man gå ind på butik.information.dk så kan man gå derind, og så kan man købe bogen og få den sendt hjem til sig selv, og man får den med en helt fantastisk rabat på 15%. Det vil sige, at en bog, man ellers skulle have givet 300 kroner for, den kan man få for 255 kroner. Jeg kan ikke sige andet, end der er mange, der har sagt til mig, at det er den helt perfekte sommerferielæsning. Tag chancen. Jeg tror ikke, I bliver skuffet. I næste uge vender vi tilbage, og det bliver med Bill McKibben. Tak til alle jer, der lyttede med.